before we get back into angelology part three, week number three, we want to pray, we want to talk to God, and then we want to talk about Michael, Gabriel, and the angel of the Lord. We'll start with Michael. Just thought that would be a good one to start with. Like that. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to study your word. Thanks for this great setting in which we have uh, to do that where we can eat together as the early church so often did. As I wrote about this last week in the bulletin, it's a great time for us to connect, to come together, to have that kind of uh, commonality of sharing meals and then uh, digging into your word together, looking at it carefully, uh, in gaining and increasing our knowledge of the unseen things that are important to you. And... Um, God, we just want to fill our minds with what you have revealed about the things that are uh, yet to be fully realized. And I know we're going to have a whole new perception a uh, hundred years from now. We'll have a whole entirely new perception on this. But we want to get started. We want to get excited. We want to, as Colossians says, set our minds on things above, not on the things of the earth. Or as Paul said to the Corinthians, we certainly don't want to get bogged down in the temporal things, the things that we can see. We want to go beyond that and invest in and look forward to and, and, and strive for things that have some eternal impact. And to think about this angelic class will certainly be uh, something that's going to last forever. We're going to be able to uh, interact to the place of even judging angels and their uh, dealings with one another. So we want to get as well acquainted as we possibly can. So God, please uh, have a great harvest come from this. And by that I mean may there be ramifications that we haven't even thought of because this crowd has taken time to study your word and this particular topic to study uh, more about what the Bible says regarding angels and demons. Thanks so much for tonight, God. We look forward to this very positive night. Uh, be great for us to, to contemplate these three amazing figures in the Bible. And uh, so, God, help us now, I pray, as we understand, as we seek to understand your word. Give us that illumination you promised in the Old Testament. And I know you've been practicing on uh, many of us. Uh, every week you give us insight. And, and so continue to do that, God. Open up our minds now, please, and let us understand your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Let us talk about Michael. There are three good angelic figures in the Old Testament, and we want to do our best to round out our view of these. We'll look at every reference to Michael and Gabriel, but let's start with Michael understanding a little bit about his name. Anytime you see his name in the New Testament, it is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew word, which is transliterated for us in uh, to our Old Testaments. Three parts. I tried to break it down. Mikael. 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 That's the Hebrew word, and here's what it means. Three parts. Mi is who. Ka is... Uh, conjunction really it ties together the end of it is is like it's some it's like like an equal sign and l is of course the nickname the short name for elohim which is the standard name for god who is like god Mikael. who is like god now the problem is we're not quite sure what the bible is getting at because we don't have the punctuation we don't have an explanation it could be a rhetorical question it could be the question who is like god and it's a rhetorical question, and the answer would be, well, no one is just exactly like God, right? I mean, there, there's no one like God. It could be a rhetorical question. Then again, it could be a statement. It could be a statement that this is a person that bears a name 
who is one like God, one who is like God. And by that, we're not trying to be blasphemous. We're simply saying, just like you would say, using the adjective godly, whenever you say that guy's godly or that gal's godly, you're not trying to be blasphemous. You're simply saying they're a lot like God in how they acted just then or how they have behaved or how they restrained their anger or whatever. That was a godly thing. That was a godly person. Uh, To say that is to say, Mikael, uh, someone is acting like or behaving like God. That's the Hebrew compound word, Mikael. Who is like Elohim? Who is like God? Could be. Who is like God? The one who is like God? Perhaps. Now, there are ten men in the Bible with this name. And here's your chart, okay? Not that this is going to be great edification for your time with God this week, uh, but here they are. If you want to have them, I wanted to spare you writing them, but I wanted to be thorough, okay? So from Numbers 13 to Ezra 8 in the Old Testament, we have none in the New Testament, we have the name Mikael or Michael, and that uh, represents, in all the references of it, it represents ten different men in the Bible. There are variations, Micah, Mikael, there's all kinds of variations, some in the feminine, they relate to more, but just the word in the exact spelling as the angel Michael, this is how many we have, ten. All scattered, I mean, the, even reading their definitions is kind of numbing here. You have to dust off your Old Testament history. Okay, enough of that. B, look how quickly we're moving. What we want to talk about, though, is the angel. The angel. There is one angel by the name Michael, and that's the one we want to talk about tonight. So take your Bibles and turn to Daniel 10. We're going to look at every reference to the angel Michael, Mikael, who is like God or the one like God. Daniel 10, we've already looked at the context of this a little bit, but here Daniel is having a vision. God is going to reveal some amazing things and already has in Daniel chapter 9 about the coming of Messiah. Verse number 8, just to pick it up here in the middle of this discussion, we'll have two references to Michael here in this narrative. Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse number 8, follow along with me as I read it. So I was left alone and I saw a great vision, Daniel says, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance... Okay, sounds a little boastful there, guy. But, you know, his, his normal, vegetable-motivated, clear, radiant appearance was changed, fearfully changed. I retained no strength, verse 9. I heard the sound of his words, and um, I heard the sound of his words, verse number 9, and I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you. Stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for the first day that you set your heart to turn, or to understand, rather, and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I've come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, again, a prince is a ruler, a strong, some kind of potentate. Uh, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. This angel somehow was waylaid, held up, embattled by the prince of Persia. Obviously not a good guy if you are somehow detaining the one who's the answer to the prayer of the godly man and bringing a message to him. So 21-day delay. Good news is I was all tied up, but Mikael, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. 
And I came to make you understand what is going to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Now drop down to verse 20. Then he said, uh, Do you not know I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. So now he's explained it. Now I'm leaving. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. Okay. And I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none to contend by my side except against these except Michael, your prince. Okay. So a couple things here that are important for us to clarify. Number one, in verse number 13, note carefully, he is called one of the chief princes. That means he has some kind of contemporary, some kind of compatible, uh, lateral, equal. And this is princes. And princes are even equated in this text to those that are fighting against him. He's got the princes of Persia, and he is a prince himself, and he's an equal. I say this because if you haven't been exposed to it, that's great. But there are many people that would like to say that Michael is actually Jesus Christ. He is the created angelic being who is, sure, at the top of the food chain when it comes to angels, but he's not eternal God of God. He's not, he's not the second person of the eternal Godhead. He's not the always existing one. He's a created angelic being. And many cult groups have latched onto this and they say, hey, he is, um, he's Christ. This text right here describes him as one of the chief princes. Chief, he's a big wig. I mean, no doubt about that, but he's one of them. That's important. I put this there because this is a word we dealt with in our Christology class, monogenes. He is not the monogenes Christ. Monogenes, translated in old translations, the only begotten, which is in the breadth of this particular word, uh, brings to mind things like uh, the, the, the only kid we have. But that, if you look at the usage of this word, it has a lot more to do with, particularly in the context that we find it in the Bible, with the one and only, the unique, the favored heir, the one who is going to receive all dominion and power and all of that kind of... Even in, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, monogenes is used of Isaac when he was born of Abraham, but he wasn't the only son Abraham had, right? He had Ishmael, but he's the monogenes. ESV rightly translates monogenes in the New Testament as the only. For instance, the most famous verse in all the Bible for most people, uh, John 3.16, has the word monogenes in it. For God so loved the world, the old translations say, that he gave his only begotten son. Okay? And, and if you look at the ESV, it'll say the, the only son. Some translations take, say the one and only son. The only one. Now just that monogenes that's thrown around so much in the New Testament to describe Christ couldn't possibly be this guy because this guy is one of the chief princes. Follow that? Now that's really easy to see in this text, but there's a lot of people today deceived into believing that Michael is Jesus Christ. He's becoming flesh in verse 14 and dwelling among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only monogenes, the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, the one and only. Drop down to verse 18. It gets even weirder here and clearer here that this is no way an angelic being. Verse 18. No one has seen God, the monogenes, theos, the 
Only the one and only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. Well, that's trippy. That's called the trippiness of the Trinity, right? That's how it works. It's weird. The monogamous God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. That's how the book starts. This word is the monogamous. Okay? And remember, by the way, if you want to add to this, to the cultist at your door who wants to say it's, it's Jesus, remember the verse we quoted several times already, Colossians 1.16. In Christ, all things were created. In heaven, on earth, visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is not one of the chief princes. Jesus is everlasting God. Uh, that was Colossians 1.16. Now, back to our text. It's a very simple phrase, but He's called the prince here uh, in the bottom of verse number 21. And we'll go back to Daniel. We need to look at Daniel. Daniel 10.21. He's your prince. Obviously, he's fighting for the good of Daniel to receive the revelation from the other unnamed angel. And here is Michael who's fighting and defending the conduit of the message. And he's now called Daniel's prince. Well, you had a prince, and the prince was... Um, I'm sorry, uh, Greece had a prince, uh, and, and he's coming. And Persia had, had, had a prince... And now he's called your prince. And just to show you where that goes in chapter 12, uh, go to chapter 12 with me. You'll see in verse number 1 of Daniel chapter 12 that when he says he's your prince, he doesn't mean he's Daniel's personal you know, guardian angel. Look at verse number 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. So he is the assigned defender, at least in this text, at this time, he's the assigned defender of Israel. Now that's an interesting thought right there. But think about this. If this still holds true, now I don't know, you know what job security is like in the angelic class, but if he is the defender and protector of Israel, it's an interesting thought if God is not through with Israel yet, which I firmly believe based on how I understand the Bible, that the prince, if you will, the angelic prince kind of governing the affairs of what's going on over there even though i mean you don't have to be redeemed i mean we've got all kinds of angelic beings looking after all kinds of affairs of world's uh leaders and, and political structures you know here is we're, we're getting into michael's territory uh so if you get off in tel aviv you know you can have that sense that perhaps he was and i assume he still is the prince of the people of daniel he's his prince because Daniel is a Jew, he's, a, he's an Israelite, and Daniel 12.1, we find out he is the prince of his people. Interesting. So we have an angel who is the defender of Daniel and his people. He is not Jesus Christ. He's one of others, and he's not the only of anything. Okay? Although he may be the top-ranking angelic overseer of the affairs of Israel. New Testament. Turn with me to Jude. We run into him again here in Jude by name. What we don't have, as we see the description in Jude, in, let's start in verse number 8, we don't have his name show up in the account that is described here. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God-breathed words through the pen of Jude, we have some explanation about what was going on in Moses' time regarding Michael. Verse 8. Talking about all of these false teachers. And these false teachers, in like manner, 
They rely on their dreams, they defi- not on the Word of God, as Jeremiah 23 says. They defile their flesh, they do sinful things. They reject authority, they blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, which we don't have all the details on that in the book of Exodus or Deuteronomy or wherever we might find it, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Now what's interesting in this text and what we have for the first time is an appellation or a title given to Michael called the archangel. Now we know what Malek and Angelos are, messenger. Now we have the word arche put at the front of it, which is the ruling angel. We have one who is the leading angel. And if we take that to mean the same thing as a chief prince, chief means he's up at the top, prince means he rules, angel one of the main things we call these rulers and messengers, and arche in Greek, the archangel, the leading, ruling one, then we get the sense that we're talking about the same thing here. The idea that he is the archangel. But when he says the archangel, which it does uh, in this text, we don't mean the by meaning the only one. We mean the in terms of Michael the archangel. Like Mike the pastor doesn't mean I'm the only pastor. It just, you're designating who I am. But he is, and people will say, and this is where some of the cultists go, he's the only one ever mentioned as being an archangel. That's true. But if you understand a chief prince being the same thing as an archangel, then clearly we have a statement in Daniel that says he's not the only one. I can also show you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that even in the New Testament, Though he may be the only one named an archangel, he is not the only archangel because of the indefinite grammatical structure of this phrase in a very familiar verse in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 when it says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command with the voice of an archangel. Indefinite article in English because the absence of the definite article in Greek because there is no indefinite article in Greek. More on that later because I'm going to need that. But we have, you know what definite articles are. The is a definite article. A or an before a vowel of a noun is an indefinite article. A ball, the ball, specific ball, any, any old ball. Get me a book. Get me the book. It gives us a definite focus. When you have no definite article in Greek, then we are reading it as an indefinite. Same in Hebrew. So in this text, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it says there's going to be a voice of an archangel, which is very important for us to recognize that if there was only one, we'd say the archangel, but there clearly is more than one, okay? Let's go to Revelation 12, Revelation chapter 12. Let's run into Michael a fourth time here in the Bible, the fourth and final time, at least by name we run into him. Revelation chapter 12 which looks back to a time, most believe, that we're going to talk about in detail when we get to the fall of Satan, which is Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. As the prophets take the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon and they then project into this cosmic battle that went on between Satan and the host of heaven. But here's a description of it that's very interesting and all-encompassing beginning in verse number 7. Revelation 12, 7 through 12. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael, there he is, and his angels. Again, you can see where the cultists might say, hey, oh, there you go. 
looks like all the angels are his. Uh, he's an archangel. Clearly, he's uh, you know be like saying uh, you don't know I don't know a general in his army or even a even a uh, you know a captain in his army, um, and this or captain and his soldiers. Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. He was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent was also called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Lots to learn there when we learn about Satan's activity. Verse 11. And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Even there you see the distinction between Michael and the Lamb, two different people. And by the word of their testimony, for they loved their lives even unto... They did not love their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. So what we have is a couple of New Testament verses, one in Jude and one in Revelation that point back to what we're going to study in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 and one that we don't have any details on about the dispute regarding the body of Moses at the end of the book of Deuteronomy and he then confronted Satan. Satan obviously is a created angel. Michael is a created angel. They're going toe-to-toe in a couple of different situations that are described in the New Testament. Now if Satan and Michael are going at it we're assuming because of the way they're paired off that he might also be a cherub, right? Now think this through. Uh, We're going to see this in more detail in in Ezekiel 28, but Satan is called before his fall a guardian cherub. He had a role in heaven near the ranks of God as we saw last week, and he is some high-ranking bodyguard of God, if you will, And Michael, then, if he is constantly paired off against Satan in these two New Testament references, we can assume, and a lot of people do assume, that he is uh, a a cherub. Did I put this down here? Fighting leader of an army, possibly a cherub. The passage for that, if you want to jot it down, Ezekiel 28, 14, which describes Satan as uh, a guardian cherub. And the plural, how do you say the plural? Cherubim. Michael. Beyond that, we don't know much. We have some things in extra-biblical writings. Tobit, Enoch. I'll talk about a little bit of that when we're done talking about Gabriel. But beyond what we have as a sure word from God regarding Michael, that's it. And we have more information about the various Michaels uh, that were men from Numbers to, to Ezra. But regarding Michael, the archangel, that's all we have. Daniel reference, New Testament references, looking back to Old Testament activity. Let's talk about Gabriel a little bit. Gabriel. Let's understand his Hebrew name. Gabriel. 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 Gabriel is another difficult word. And if you don't know this, let me tell you, all ancient Hebrew was only made up of consonants. Matter of fact, go to Israel with us. Uh, A couple hundred of you are. That is going to be great. Uh, and go to any newsstand or bookstore and pick up a Hebrew text, and you'll find it's all a bunch of letters uh, that you have a hard time deciphering. But then pick up a Hebrew Bible or turn on your software and look at a Hebrew Bible, and it's a bunch of letters and a bunch of dots and, and dashes all around those letters. The dots and dashes all around those letters were put in place 
between the 9th and 12th century A.D. by a group of Jews called the Masoretes. They're called the Masoretic Pointings. Those are to help people vocalize the language, and they are the vowel sounds. The characters themselves are all the consonants. Today, if you read a book, actually, it's a good thing to go to a bookstore in, in Israel, in Galilee or in Jerusalem, pull a book off the regular reading shelves, and there'll be no dots and dashes. Then go to the early readers, the elementary or primary school, you know, the, the, you know, the, the card, card books, what do they call them? Board books. And you'll see they do have the vowel pointings. Because when little kids want to learn to read Hebrew, they've got to know how to vocalize the, these, these consonants all strung together. Uh, but then once you learn how to read Hebrew, you stop with that. Unless, of course, you're a seminary grad and you're always reliant on the vowel pointings. Really, a grown-up Jew in Israel is going to laugh at our scholarly Hebrew Bibles because they're all vowel pointed and only kids' books are vowel pointed. When you read an old text, you have vowels strung together. In our case, just to transliterate, GBR. GBR can be pronounced two ways with two different sets of vowel pointings and you can have two different words come out of that. Okay? GBR either means mighty or it means man. Okay? And the L means Elohim. So it's the short name for Elohim. So you either have uh, mighty one of God. That's one thing that Gabriel's name could mean. And in that case, he's God's strong warrior. Okay? Or, and we don't know, if you vow point it differently, it could mean man of God, which is usually the ways in lexicons it is vowel pointed and what most people, how they translate it, which makes a lot of sense. And if that's the case, what we're saying is man in this case is kind of like how we would use the, the, the idiom in English, kind of man up. It's, it's, it's this, it has that sense of strength. Be a man about it. Angel, you know, Gabriel is, is God's strong man. Now, wait a minute. Why are we calling an angel a man? There could be a third reason for that. And it has to do with his appearance. He appears in the Bible, and we're going to look at all the references to Gabriel. Constantly, we see the description that Gabriel is appearing as a man. And some people say, well, that's what we mean. We don't mean strong man. We mean he's just one appearing as a man for God, though he's not a man. Gabriel. So that's a lot of messy mud there without a lot of clear definition but it means mighty one of God or man of God. But it's not a man, it's an angel. I know that's confusing. I didn't write it, right? But it is, it is what we got with his name. Gebar, man, Gebura, mighty. It means one or the other. I think by the time we're done, you're going to probably go for the last one on that list. So let's keep going. Let's look at the angelic appearances. Let's go back to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 8. We'll see Gabriel show up here in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Right out of the gate, you're going to see, hey, maybe that's why he's called this. Verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me, here it comes, one having the appearance of a man. Now, you wouldn't say that unless you thought he's really not a man. You'd say that about a woman who looks like a man. But you'd only say he looks like a man because he's not a man, it's a woman. In this case, sorry, it's an angel who looks like a man, okay? But he knows you're not a man because you just kind of showed up there magically in front of me. And I heard a man's voice between the banks 
of Uliah, and it called out Gabriel. So I got another voice over here saying, Gabriel, man of God, or mighty man, or strong man, or warrior of God, make this man understand the vision. So he, that is Gabriel, came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face, but he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end, which is how the end of the book of Daniel ends up, kind of wrap this thing up till the end. Okay, so what do we learn in Daniel chapter 8? He's coming to help him understand the vision, and he's described as having the appearance of a man. He's a messenger, in this case, an interpreter of the vision he's already had, and he's going to explain it to him. Much like the angel in the book of Revelation does the same thing for John. Look across now to chapter 9. Cross the page or turn the page to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to see him again here in verse 20 through 23. Let's read a little context here. Daniel's praying, verse number 20, and speaking and praying. While I was speaking and praying, verse 20, Daniel 9, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. By the way, look at that devout man. It's enough for us to be active confessing our sins, but look at this guy as an intercessor confessing the sins of his people Israel. Not a bad thing for us to do. Do you ever pray that way for your country or your city or your state? You should. That's a godly thing. That's a godly example. That's another sermon. Don't let me stop like that. Uh, Keep reading. And I was presenting my plea before the Lord my God uh, and for the holy hill of my God, which is the Temple Mount. While I was speaking in prayer, now look at the way this is described. Ish, the, the Hebrew word for man. The man... Gabriel, Gehor, Gaber, uh, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice, and he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. That's a nice thing to hear from an angel, that God loves us. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision, and off he goes again to describe one of the most amazing prophetic prophecies in all the old testament but gabriel was the one explaining it to him and he's described as the man gabriel who's an angel weird why are you calling the angel a a man because he appears to be so anyway what do we learn here again he's called the man gabriel he's not a man he's an angel has the appearance of a man maybe that's where his name comes from go to daniel 10 now we keep getting this interface between daniel and this angel we have his name show up twice just like we had michael's name show up in this book but now we're going to have references to angels and interestingly they're just simply put in terms of one who's in the likeness of a man verse 16 daniel 10:16. and behold one underline this now in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips and then i opened my mouth and i spoke and i said to him who stood before me my lord by reason of the vision uh by reason of the vision pains have come upon me and i I retain no strength but look how he's set up here his name is not used is this gabriel perhaps it can be it's the way gabriel was described twice all right one in the likeness of the children of man verse 18 drop down to verse 18 two verses away there again one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me okay so again we have this angel gabriel perhaps At least that's how Gabriel was described, one in the appearance of a man. So here's the problem. The reason I kind of went through this with a lot of pain going through the the back door. But um, 
If you open up a lexicon or you read your Bible dictionary or you look up in any Bible dictionary, Gabriel, you may see next to it the man of God. And you're going to go, that makes no sense. Uh, you, it would almost be easier to have that if we had, like with Michael, a bunch of human beings called Michael or Gabriel. We've got ten human beings called Michael in the, in the Old Testament. We have zero men called Gabriel in the Old Testament. We have one angel called Gabriel. Are you tracking with me on that? So when you see Gabriel means man of God, you're going to go, it doesn't make any sense that that's what it would be called because there are no men of God in the Bible named Gabriel. No, but there's an angel named Gabriel. Perhaps now looking at all these references in Daniel, maybe we know why now. And since I can't be definitive, I'll just leave that with you. Now, New Testament, just like Michael, we get Gabriel showing up in the New Testament. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, the most important apex of human history here. We have the arrival of Christ at the right time. God sent His Son, born of a woman. Here she comes. Here He comes. Actually, we're going to have the forerunner to Christ show up. We've got to get John and Jesus born. So you know the story. Chapter 1, verse 18. Zechariah, ministering in the temple, chosen to go in there all by himself, and boom, angel shows up. Luke 1, 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Going to have a baby. That was the announcement. I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. We've got no kids. How is this going to happen? And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Here I am. Gabriel. That should ring a bell for anybody who studied the book of Daniel. And surely he had. I stand in the presence of God. There's the first thing we learned about him in this text. Verse number 19. Whoever this being is, he's not just one of these low-ranking guys Though he's not called in the Bible an archangel, he's standing in the presence of God, which is what we know the cherub do as described in the Old Testament. I was sent to you to speak to you, to bring you good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, he should have figured this out because he's in a place where there are no people and a person shows up, and that freaked him out. And he should have just believed what Gabriel said. Sent from God to Jerusalem. Verse 26, Mary and Joseph. Look at verse 26, same chapter. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled by the saying... What was Zechariah greatly troubled by, though he didn't read it, verses 11 through 17, by the fact that someone's showing up where he shouldn't be? Uh, well, Mary's not in the you know, inside of the temple. Mary is who knows what. This guy probably walked through the door or out in the street or wherever he was. The bottom line is what freaked her out was not the appearance of Gabriel. So again, we assume this is the one who looks like just a regular man. She's freaked out by the fact that she's going to have a baby. Uh, or I'm sorry, that she's favored in this case, verse 28. Greatly troubled by the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And she freaks out too. And it's interesting how the difference between Mary's response and Zachariah's response, you may say, are not a whole lot different. There's two reasons why. One is there was a miracle that took place right there by the appearance of a person that wasn't standing there a second ago in a place where he could not have possibly been in the inside of the temple. Uh, Mary didn't have that. And secondly, uh, Zechariah is a leader among God's people and much older, and Mary was a teenager, and 
Uh, Mary doesn't have any kind of discipline because she struggles to accept the word, although she eventually does. And I think her word was a little harder than Zachariah's word, right? If you can have a baby in your old age, that's hard to believe. But having a baby without having a man impregnate you, that's harder to believe. Um, preached a sermon on this once a long time ago, if you want to explore that more. The difference between Zachariah and Mary, and it was one of the Christmas sermons years back, but we just looked at those two lives, if you ever want to go deeper into that. Now, here's the weird stuff. Extra-biblical writings, lore, legend, some of it coming from the post-exilic period, some from the exilic period, which is about the 6th century B.C., 5th century, 4th century after the exile, to Babylon, that is. If you read the extra-biblical writings, you will find that Michael and Gabriel are paired together in the same class of angelic beings. They are called archangels together, okay? It's even before the New Testament authors call them that, or call Michael that. They never call Gabriel that. Called Gabriel the one who stands in the presence of God, or that's what they record Gabriel as saying. First Enoch, for instance. Uh, Gabriel, in First Enoch 20, verses 1 through 8, he's called an archangel, which doesn't mean much. I mean, may not mean much to you. But what's weirder is that the extra-biblical writers name seven archangels. And maybe you've heard some of their names. They got Gabriel and Michael. They usually put them in reverse order. Michael and Gabriel. Raphael. I know you've heard of that angel, right? He makes it in a lot of stuff. Sariel, Uriel, Remiel, and Raguel. Those are the seven angels described in the Jewish lore and extra-biblical writings, non-canonical writings, non-God-breathed writings that describe the archangels. And those seven angels are by name littered throughout the writings that describe what happened in the Bible. They'll go back and retell the story. For instance, when Noah was going to get the news that the flood was coming, the extra-biblical writers say, which one did they say? Sariel comes and delivers the message to Noah himself. He was God's liaison to give that message to him. Here's one that'll freak you out. In cave number one, the first cave we dug, we, like I was there, uh, scrolls out of the Dead Sea, uh, one of the scrolls you might have heard of called the, the, the War Scroll. The War Scroll describes... I think, three of these non-biblical angels that are in this class of archangels described in extra-biblical writings. Tobit, maybe you've heard of that, your Catholic background, names Raphael by name in chapter 12, verse 15. We could go on. If you want some time, maybe on your Logos, if you have it, you can get what's called the pseudopigrapha or the Old Testament apocrypha, not the traditional apocrypha, but the Old Testament apocrypha or the New Testament apocrypha, which are a whole different set of books than what you're thinking of in the Catholic tradition. But type in pseudopigrapha if you can spell that. Pseudopigrapha, you can spell it. Uh, you're better spelled than me, I'm sure. If you buy that Logos book, just do a search on those names. Type in Raphael, and you'll find all the extra-biblical writings that some even predate New Testament writings, many of them do, uh, that will name these angels, which is 
just worth talking about, not worth getting all uptight about or getting too excited about. Balance. All right. That's all I can say about Michael and Gabriel. You'll meet them one day, I hope, unless you're cast in the lake of fire. Uh, and I mean, then you probably won't. It'll be a very short visit. I trust you will come with me to the New Jerusalem and you will get to meet Michael and Gabriel. Okay? This is all real to you, I hope, right? Let's talk about the angel of the Lord. Let's talk about the title. Angel of the Lord. Do you see the three letters I've underlined? Because when you look up these passages in your Bible, some 55 references in the Old Testament, what you will find is that your O-R-D are in small caps. They're caps. They just don't happen to go all the way to the top of the line. The title, Lord, whenever you see O-R-D with caps, small caps, albeit small caps, is the word Yahweh. Yahweh is the Hebrew proper name of God used some 6,828 times in the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament. By far the most common reference to God in all of the Bible, Yahweh. This is important because you'll see a lot of talk about the Ben Elohim, for instance, the sons of God being angels. You will see the angels of God. What's unique some 55 times is the angel of Yahweh. You don't ever see it in a plural, the angels of Yahweh. You'll see the angels of God, the angels of Elohim. You will not see the angels of Yahweh. And since we had time, I thought, once you get into this capital O-R-D stuff, some people think, this is weird. Uh, so let's spend a little bit of time. I know it's review for some of you, but you all carry around an ESV or an NAS or whatever you're carrying around. Uh, they all play this game, so let me explain it one more time. And if you're up with me, just have another taquito or just lean back, relax. But let's talk about sorting this out. And even if you've heard it, maybe you should learn it this time so well that you can explain it to someone else so that I won't have to explain it all the time and you can explain it to people. Okay? Three important Hebrew words. Number one, Yahweh. 6,828 times in the Old Testament. Yahweh. What is Yahweh? It is God's proper name. Michael has a proper name. It's Michael. I have a proper name. It's Michael. Okay? You have a proper name. I don't know. Whatever your name is. That's your proper name. That proper name is God's name. Yahweh. And whenever the word Yahweh appears in the Hebrew text, almost every time, I'll explain when it's not, you will see capital L, small case O, small cap I'm sorry, small cap O, small cap R, small cap D, which let's just call them for short, all caps, okay? Even though they don't go all the way to the top of the line. Another important word you've heard many, many times, Adonai. Adonai is not God's name. Adonai is God's title. God's title is translated in our Bibles, Lord. No capital O, no capital R, no capital D. It's all small. Small O, small R, small D. I have a title, you have a title, you got a business card, it's got a title on it. My business card says Pastor, and they call me Pastor Mike. That's my title, and that's my name. Pastor is my title, Mike is my name. God's title is Adonai. God's name is Yahweh. Good so far? Elohim. Talk a lot about Elohim. The angels of Elohim, the sons of Elohim. Elohim is God's position. God is God. He's in charge. That's the word we translate God. And it's weird because it's in a plural. I get all that. But it's God's in charge. God. Who is he? He's God. What's his title? Lord. 
Adonai. What's his name? Yahweh. Now, here's, here, here's where it gets tricky. The combinations. The Hebrew text can say Adonai Elohim, and it's rare, but it happens. Matter of fact, we passed one in Daniel 9. When, when David, David, da- Daniel turns his heart to Adonai Elohim to seek the Lord and to confess his sins. There's the comedy. It's very rare, but it happens. It's occasional in the Bible. Adonai Elohim. And when you see the words Lord God and you got small o, small r, small d, small o, small d, right? Then you know you've got a combination, Adonai Elohim. You won't find it very often in your Bible. Sometimes you have this combination, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Elohim. About 25% of the time that you see the words Lord God, you will have this combination, capital L, cap O, cap R, cap D, capital G, small O, small D. That in Hebrew is translating, that in English is translating the Hebrew phrase Yahweh Elohim. Okay? Uh, Mike, the pastor, if you will. Wow, that's blasphemous almost to use that in an illustration, but it works, right? Pastor Mike. There is a name and a title. Sometimes, 75% of the time, or roughly 74% of the time, if you will, you'll see the combination Adonai Yahweh. Ezekiel loves it. He's off the charts on using this one. Adonai Yahweh is translated, if we translated it the way we would translate it, because we see how Adonai is translated, and we see how Yahweh, then it should read Lord, Lord. But that sounds weird. So they don't translate it that way. They translate it this way, Lord God small o, small r, small d, but on God, capital O, capital D. Do you see that? That's kind of a game that all the translators play, and we have to play along. Why do they do that? Because Yahweh has been traditionally the sacred name of God that wouldn't even be uttered by the Jews when they read the text. Even today, when a cantor reads the Old Testament scrolls, he gets to the word Yahweh, he reads the word Adonai. And in the New Testament, we don't have a word translated Yahweh. We don't have a word transliterated Yahweh. We just don't have the word Yahweh. And whenever a text is translated into Greek from Hebrew, when a New Testament author is quoting an Old Testament passage, he just uses the word kurios, which is the common word for Lord. He just That's what he uses. So we don't have a differentiation in the New Testament. And since the New Testament didn't use the word Yahweh, it just used the word Lord, kurios, Most English translations do the same. And so we have to play games with the words Lord and God with these capital letters so that we can know what the text actually says. Then inevitably at the door or at the front, because I don't go to the door on Thursday night, someone's going to say, what about the word Jehovah? And I've explained this before too, but just if you're new, I'll, I'll explain it like I've never explained it before. That doesn't mean better than I've ever explained it. I just will explain it slowly and carefully. Jehovah is not a real word. Oh, it is too. Well, it is a word, but it's not a biblical word, okay? Really? Right. Now, this gets weird, but what did I say? When a text, when any Jew was reading the Hebrew text and they got to the word Yahweh, they wouldn't read it, right? As a matter of fact, in the copies, they just started putting lines for what they call the tetragrammaton, which is the four vowels of of his name, right? Yod, He, Vav, He, just Yahweh, just gone just scratched out lines and every time a reader would read it they would read adonai here's what happened the hebrew vowels of adonai which i know in our english text look like a o 
AI, are really in Hebrew what we call a reduced pathic. It's not an A sound. It's, it's an E sound. So, so it's an E, if you will. Another night on this, we'll do some Hebrew. Uh, a holum, which is an O, and uh, comets, which is an A sound. So E-O-A. If you were going to sound them out, that's what it's going to sound like. Those are the vowel pointings for Adonai. Okay? Those were conflated, laid on top of. They were meshed together with the word, or the consonants, rather, of Yahweh. Yod, He, Vav, He. Those four letters and those three vowels were smashed together, right? Because they read it as Adonai, but the original words were, or the original letters were really, if you will, W-H-W, I'm sorry, uh, Y-H-W-H. So they put those together. It produced W, I'm sorry, I'm bad at reading English. Y-E-H-O-W-A-H, okay? Which is getting closer, okay? In Hebrew, they're all Y sounds. There's no Jesus or Jacob or John or Joseph. They're all Y sounds, right? We've taken those Y sounds and turned them into J sounds, which really started back in Latin, and then German really got us going on it because there is no J sound. They're Ys. When you transliterate a Hebrew word from Hebrew to German, let's just say that, you're going to put a J at the front of Yeshua. Yeshua is the word Joshua, and we say Joshua. They don't. Yeshua. Um, you name any J word. We've got all kinds of J Hebrew words, but there's no J sound. They're all Y sounds. But when they come into English, we put a J there. And we read, good Brit progeny, we read it as J. J. Okay? So Ys are Js. They become Js in English. And Wavs end up being pronounced as Vavs, is even how I, as most Hebrew students read Waz as Vavs, is a V sound. So now what does that result in? It results in a J-E-H-O-V-A. There's our word. Ta-da! Jehovah. But it's not a real word. Did you follow that? Kind of? If you heard it before, maybe now we're getting it. (laughs) Uh, Because it takes a few times to hear it. So, this is kind of fun with the Jehovah Witness at your door sometimes. Uh, Yeah. Or, Or old hymns, you know. And even the KJV put it in a couple times. But it's, it's not a real word. The real word is Yahweh. And they, they stole the vowels. They make a great cartoon, like a conjunction, junction, what's your function kind of <laughs> cartoon. And you could, you could play this out and explain where Jehovah came from. All right, back, back to what we're supposed to be talking about. Elohim is used broadly. Yahweh is used specifically. It is His proper name. Okay? Now, you never have, and I already said all this, but you never have angels of Yahweh. You only have angel of Yahweh, and what you have it is as a grammatical definite, as a definite article or a grammatical definite in Hebrew. It is a, it is, let's put it this way, the angel of the Lord. And in the ESV, for instance, there are 56, I said 55, I was wrong, 56 occurrences of angel of the Lord, and every single one of them in your ESV is translated with a definite article, the angel of the Lord. No angels of the Lord and no an angel of the Lord. They're always the angel of the Lord. That's unique. In the New Testament, with the word kurios, you do have the combination uh, angel of the Lord, but it is always an indefinite article, which is no article at all in Greek. It's 
an angel of the Lord. With the exception of one time when it's describing Joseph and referring back to an angel of the Lord when he talks about the angel of the Lord in the dream. But every other reference is an angel of the Lord. And even in his reference, we're talking about an angel of the Lord, which is the same way you would say an angel of Adonai or even an angel of Elohim, an angel of God. So that's even interesting. File that one away. We can bring that one back later. You always have definite angel of the Lord, Old Testament. You always have indefinite angel of the Lord, New Testament. I think there's a reason for that. All right, let's talk about his words. This is good. Not that the rest wasn't. Perhaps it wasn't. Maybe this is better. Not sure. Let's just keep going. Genesis chapter 16. Let's go to Genesis 16. I'll give you three examples. We've got 56 examples, but let me just give you a couple. I'll give you three. The Genesis text and all of these references, I'm going to show you how it's used in the first person, and then we're going to look at how it's identified as Yahweh himself. Okay? Genesis 16, are you there? Verse 10. And the angel, what we always should expect, the angel of the Lord said to her, Hagar now, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered. This is, is Hagar going to get shoved out. Ishmael, you remember the whole story. Verse 11. And the angel of the Lord, remember these are all caps, right? This is the angel of Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call him Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. I'm not sure how that makes her feel. Uh, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over and against all of his kinsmen. Now look at verse 13. So she called the name Yahweh had spoken to her. You are a God of seeing. El Roye. El Roye. God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. No, what you saw was the angel of the Lord. And you say that the Lord, Yahweh, said that to you? That was an angel of Yahweh. Do you see that right there? That's the pattern we find everywhere. The angel Lord speaks. He speaks as though he's God. And the people say, hey, God just said something to me. Now you can say, oh, well, that's just the messenger. But often we find when it's not the angel Lord, they say the angel said it. Just like Daniel keeps talking about that. Because it's Gabriel or it's Michael. Here now, we miss the intermediary and it just becomes Yahweh said it to me. Let's give you two more examples. Exodus 3. Exodus 3. Which if you were with us in Christology, the lights came on for some of you who had never seen this before. But if you weren't in Christology, then this is eye-opening. Because in Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus 3, we got the burning bush episode. Moses, verse 1, keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, Exodus 3, 1. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. He came to Horeb, to the mountain of God. And the angel of Yahweh, there's our phrase we see 56 times, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Now, if you weren't paying attention, and I just said, think about the burning bush and what's going on there, we think God. But the text is set up that it's not God, it's the angel of the Lord interesting he looked and behold the bush was burning yet it was not consumed now look at verse 3 and moses said i will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned verse 4 when yahweh saw that he had turned aside to see elohim to see rather elohim called to him out of the bush moses moses and he said here i am do you catch all that angel of the lord appears in a bush Verse 4, Yahweh sees him turn aside to look at it, and Elohim says, God says to him, Moses, 
Who is that in the bush? Well, it's the angel of the Lord, but speaking as though it's God, identified as God. That's in Exodus 4, building a paradigm here. Judges 6.12 and Judges 6.14. Speaking in first person as God, identified as Yahweh. Look at uh, Judges 6. And again, we could look at more examples. Here's another one, though. This is uh, the calling of Gideon. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord, angel of Yahweh, appeared to him. This is his dad, right? Verse 12, Joash. Oh, no, but with this Gideon now. Gideon's beating out the wheat in the wine press where you don't do that. You beat out the wheat on the threshing floor. You tread out the wine in the wine press, but he's hiding from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, Please, sir, if Yahweh is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not uh, Yahweh bring us up out of Egypt? But now Yahweh has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Who's talking? Well, it was the angel of the Lord, but now it's Yahweh. Do you see that pattern all over the place? And weird. Not like we see with the rest of the angelic beings who are speaking and bringing messages on behalf of God. This messenger, the angel of Yahweh, speaks in the first person and is identified in the text as though he's Yahweh. Now, you can back off of that and say, well, it's just all in the same. The message is coming from God. I, you know... It's just, we're just kind of taking the messenger out of the equation. But let's keep going. It gets beyond just a grammatical or syntactical or semantical discussion. This becomes a problem uh, when we talk about the angel of the Lord receiving worship. For instance, just for some background, angels of God do not accept worship, right? You know this from a couple of passages. We don't need to look at these, but you know them. Revelation twice, for some reason, John falls down to worship the angel in Rev 19, Rev 22. And both times the angel says, no, don't do that. Worship God. Worship God. Now, any Jew should know that. Why? Because that's how the Ten Commandments started. We worship God. That's the only person we worship. We only worship God. Which, by the way, is interesting in Revelation chapter 19 and 22 because the angels say, don't worship me. I'm not God. Don't worship me. Only worship God. Do you know how the whole thing started in, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5? They're all worshiping the Lamb who was slain. What's that all about? Well, it's about the fact that He must not be just a messenger. We're only supposed to worship God. He's asking for worship, receiving worship. 24 elders are falling down, and they're all saying dominion, power, majesty belong to God and to the Lamb that sit on the throne. Don't run your mind past. That's big. We're going to worship the Lamb and God? who sits on the throne, what must be more than just a Jewish rabbi? Angel of the Lord, though, in the Old Testament, demands worship. Two times, for the sake of time, we'll hurry along. Exodus 3, 5, and 6, which is the burning bush episode, you do remember this line, take off your sandals, right? The ground on which you're standing is holy ground. Here is this sense of getting down and worshiping and the angel of the Lord is the one who is manifest in, in this scene. And the same thing happens in Joshua 5. Oops, there it goes. Joshua 5, 13 through 15. 
if the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament and the Lamb of God in the New Testament are receiving worship, and God is the only one to be worshipped, you can see where we start to say this is no ordinary angel. And maybe these statements about the angel speaking as though he's God is because he is God. Letter D, a distinction of persons. It's not as though this is just a projection of God, or as the modalists like to say back in the heretical debates about God, the Trinity, they said, well, you know, God may be three, but all that means is God is kind of showing up with three different hats on, fulfilling three different roles. Just like I'm a pastor, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm the same guy, I'm one guy, I I do have three roles. That's not how this is working here. Just like in the New Testament, Christ is praying to the Father to send the Spirit in John 14 through 16, That's more than just one person playing three roles. And so it is in the Old Testament. The book of Zechariah, let's turn there, please. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. I guess I should have said Matthew, go back, Malachi, Zechariah. All of that to give you time to get there. Zechariah chapter 1. Look at these texts. Zechariah chapter 1. Look at verse number 12 and 13. Zechariah 1, 12 and 13. Then the angel of Yahweh said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you've been angry all these 70 years? And Yahweh answered graciously, gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked to me. Now this angel who receives worship, this angel who speaks as God, is now saying... Oh, Lord, how long will you have mercy? Have no mercy on Jerusalem. You're asking Yahweh a question, messenger of Yahweh. And then Yahweh's answering back to the messenger of Yahweh who speaks as God and receives worship as God. Hey, here's some gracious and comforting words, whatever those were, but calmed down the query of the angel of the Lord. So, You can see in this text, this is going to get even stronger in chapter 3, the angel of the Lord in this text is serving as some kind of intercessor, concerned about Jerusalem, wanting the thing against Jerusalem to stop the onslaught, the the oppression. And he's told to wait, much like we see in Revelation chapter 4. Go to Zechariah 3, and I'll add another word here. He seems to serve as an advocate or a mediator. Chapter 3 in Zechariah. You're in chapter 112. Let's look at chapter 3. Oh, someone was asking about the uh, abbreviations I use. Does anybody else want to know about those? Um, There's just something I came up with. No, it's not. <laughs> this is pretty standard stuff. CF, you all know. CF period, uh, in Latin, to, conf- to confer. That means here's a cross-reference. CP, which was new to some of you, means compare, which is a contrasting text. A verse with an F behind it, and you've seen A and B and C perhaps, you think, wow, that's way down in the verse, F. No, F is, if it's one F, it means the following verse. If it's two Fs, it means the verses thereafter. You know the other ones, E, G, I, E, et al, you know, you know I, E, that is, E, G, for example, F, the following verse, F, F, the following verses, uh, et al, and others. Um, CP, compare, CF, cross-reference, confer. All right, that helps somebody, though. Zechariah 3, 1. 
He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you. What? Oh, Satan, Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Speaking of Joshua the high priest, this is not Joshua Moses' understudy. This is another Joshua, post-exilic times, the high priest at this time. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy rags. And it's a great story, but what's the point? Go back up and read it again. Verse 1. Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Satan standing there to accuse Joshua. And Yahweh says to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you. What kind of schizophrenia is that? Right? What is that? Do you see what we got? We got the angel of the Lord speaking as Yahweh to Yahweh. And then it starts to maybe tie together all this Elohim talk of a plurality in the Godhead. And I know people think, oh, they'll come to your door and say, oh, they came up with that in the fourth century, you know. No, they didn't. There's a triune God here. Summary, here's what we're saying. The angel of the Lord is equal with Yahweh. Wouldn't receive worship, wouldn't speak as as Yahweh, wouldn't say things like he's going to multiply offspring. That's what God does. He said he would do that to Abraham in, in Genesis 12. Now he's saying it to Hagar in Genesis 16. This is God. There's enough information and data to say that the angel of the Lord is in some way equal with Yahweh. Then... The angel of the Lord is in some way not the same as Yahweh. Speaks to Yahweh as though he's a different person than Yahweh. And yet he's speaking as Yahweh. So the conclusion seems to be that that's the exact doctrine we draw from the New Testament when we think about Christ. Maybe it is that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. And then when we get to the New Testament, we never see him again. Once he's incarnate, we don't see the angel of the Lord. We see an angel of God. No reference to the angel of the Lord ever again after the Old Testament interesting that is interesting real quickly for what this is worth christological parallels which is not an argument in itself but once you start to buy that conclusion you can start to see a lot of parallels for instance the visible manifestation of god you don't need to turn to these but a couple of references we know that that's what the angel of the lord is the angel shows up they can see god now in some way they're afraid to look at the bush because they didn't want to see god but then they see god and they live God. This is the representation of God. Isn't that what John 1 is all about? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. What glory is it? It is the glory of the only Son, the monogenes Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one's ever seen God. The monogenes God, who is at the Father's side, has seen Him. All this schizophrenia is the triunity of God, which is what the church has been teaching the whole time. And it's what the Bible teaches. How about this then? Another Christological parallel. Rip off a word here from Isaiah. Emmanuel, God with us. Look at these statements about the angel of the Lord. And my angel shall go before you. And then he says two verses later. I'm sorry, well, it's about 17 verses later or whatever it is. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He's recapping what he said. His promise is my malak shall go with you. My angel shall go with you. The angel of the Lord. Clearly, that's how he's described throughout the Exodus. And then he says, he calls it this, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Well, what does that mean? It's okay, I'm going with you. Well, it's the angel of the Lord's going with you. I'll be with you though. Do you see that? That's exactly what Christ was all about. The promise of Christ was God will be with us. He'll come and be among us. Now he's gone, he goes away, he doesn't orphan us, he leaves us his spirit. We can't wait to be with him again. And we'll see him face to face and that's what the new Jerusalem's all about. The dwelling of God is among men be there another christological parallel he reveals god and his name this one may be a little deep but 
It's a super interesting way that Jesus describes what he's done in John 17. The whole, any Jew looking at what the angel of the Lord did in Genesis 3 is going to say, that's where the angel of the Lord revealed the name, I am, right? That's, by the way, what Yahweh is. It is, it is a form of the verb to be, God, the ever-existing one. Look at how Jesus prays in John 17. I have manifested, that's the word revealed, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. What? I'm the revealer of your name, he says. Any Jew in the first century is going to say the revealer of the name of God was the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. And he says, I'm the manifester of the name. I'm the one manifesting the name of God, God's name, the Father's name. Number four, the protector of God's people. There's so many verses we could look at. Uh, Hebrews 13, a lot of New Testament texts. But, but look at this. In the Old Testament, it says, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. He's the protector. He's the deliverer. I could give you countless verses on him being the deliverer, but someone, you know, his, he's, he's the protector. And he says, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. Never leave you, never forsake you. The presence and protection of Christ with us is the picture of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. He's encamping around us, leading in judgment. Sorry to end on this one, but he's the leader in judgment. Rev 19, and the one sitting on it, that is the white horse, is called faithful and true. This is the battle of Armageddon. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Logos of God, the Word of God, that John 1 picture of the expression of God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Here is the incarnate God leading the army, coming back to execute judgment on the, on the planet. That is the picture Throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. He's also called the captain of the Lord's army in Joshua 5. He is the one leading the judgment against the Canaanites. There's a lot of Christological parallels, and we're out of time. Let's pray. God, thanks for our time. Thanks for our study. Thanks for this team. May they be excited to get into your word, increasingly so, as we whet their appetite for this particular topic. May we keep these things in balance, not become obsessed, seeing every demon... Uh, or a demon under every rock, or an angel in every tree. Just help us to get focused on what your word says, appreciating the, uh, the reality, the complexity, and the ministry of the angels as we learn more about them in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name, amen.